This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings. This is uh, Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia. And uh, I just wanted to give you guys something, an update and a little bit of an episode uh, for the Potiversary and everything. As far as an update goes, we are about two weeks out from having a working bathroom, at which point we will probably have to go back to the house, though the house itself won't really be functional probably for another few weeks after that. Um, my research is going, although I've, I, I feel like I don't do anything except nag the insurance company and the contractors, like that's my job and then I'm just so stressed out that I can't do anything else. Um, In any case, uh, I wanted to give you guys something to tide you over. Um, Even though uh, we do have separate rooms now at the hotel, uh, there's a vent directly between them, so still can't really record at night um, because you'll end up hearing all the lullaby music that we have playing in the child's room. So uh, in any case, um, but today we are going to be enjoying the audio from my presentation at Intelligent Speech from June. Uh, I really loved this presentation. It was a ton of fun to do um, in a very dark, dark way, Um, as you'll hear. Uh, It it is intended to have a visual version uh, or a visual visual component because obviously it was a visual presentation. The uh, video of it will be going online in a month of Saturdays on YouTube, on the Intelligent Speech YouTube channel. So if you want to just wait for that, you can do that. But I figured I'd, I'd put this up first. Uh, let me see. A month of Saturdays, we would be talking about... I, I think it's, it's either November 18th or the 25th. Um, keep an eye on social media, and I will let you know then. Um, but in any case... Uh, enjoy, and uh, I'm going to do the slap in the intro music and then the audio of the presentation. Uh, thank you all for sticking with me. <laughs> um, I really, really, really appreciate it. Um, and uh, I will say, a lot of you have been really generous, and actually, like, I got more patrons and more donations since I posted that last thing. You guys are all amazing. Uh, really, 
uh, really have been keeping me going uh, to a certain extent through this whole thing. So um, thank you all so much and um, enjoy this and we will be getting back to a regular episode at some point. Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning The most explosive session of the entire day. See, I was trying to, I, I haven't, but I was trying to fit in a, an explosion pun in your introduction. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, if, if I was, <laughs> if it was early in the day, maybe. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but yes, just for everyone joining in, we're just going to leave it a couple of minutes, just to let people uh, filter in from other sessions. And for those who are not as, I'm sure no one's running over, but yeah. Maybe they are. In which case, Mine's going to be pretty packed. <laughs> to be honest. Well, I mean, of all people, if you yeah. don't keep the time, Ben, yeah, I, I, I don't know what I don't know what to do there. <laughs> I, as I was researching this, I just kept finding more and more explosions to talk about, which is all in a very small geographic area. So. <laughs> well, I will I will keep you to time. Um, okay. El- Elspeth Olsen says that she's really excited to hear about the big booms. <laughs> she, wants, she wants the Mythbusters thrill, which, I mean, I, I have absolute faith in you, Ben, but I mean, Mythbusters is pretty great. That's yeah, I, I don't shoes really to fill. think, I don't really have a special effects department, I'm afraid. <laughs> it just like, you know, a, a bicarb soda volcano will do. <laughs> that's that's all that's all we want. Um, I've got a bottle of seltzer. I can pour it out on my computer if that helps. <laughs> it's 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 an, it's an idea. Yeah, <laughs> it's an idea. All right. Oh, Roberto says you've. You, oh yes, yep. The child. Yeah, the child. <laughs> but yes, just uh, give it to seventeen. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, and then we'll kick off. Um, Sounds good. Oh, who's that running around? That's the child. Oh, okay. Explosion. We'll be hearing that the entire time. <laughs> My poor wife <laughs> is solo on childcare all day. I'm sure she is. She looks forward to intelligent speech every year. Yeah. yeah. She knows that. Oh, joy. Yeah. We, we really, we're gonna, we're definitely moving it uh, at least in uh, earlier in the year so that at least school is still going on so that she's off our hands for at least some of the week this week has been <laughs> we had two babysitters flake out on us oh good grief and you, you can't do that you're stuck with her yeah all right well we'll start here thank you everyone for uh joining the session um this session uh, i'm i'm sam hume i'm the admin tech support all that fun stuff today i'll be keeping track of time and and uh managing the q a uh, today for this session, we have Benjamin Jacobs. Ben has a bachelor's in international relations and a master's in city and regional planning. 
and is the host of Wittenberg to Westphalia, as well as being, let's not forget, the chief mind behind today's conference extravaganza. So uh, fill, uh, flatter him a lot and you might get free tickets. Um, today, he is presenting Explosions, Munitions Disasters of New Jersey, which uh, I am very excited for, even though he's already admitted his visual effects department is a bit lacking. So without further ado, I will pass it over to you, Ben. Great. Hello, everybody. Uh, thanks for having me. Let me just get my slides going. Um, oops. There we go. Okay. So, hello, everybody. Thanks for coming. Uh, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, and I usually host Wittenberg to Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation, but my day job is as an urban planner. My first job was working at Middlesex County in New Jersey, where I grew up. Um, I actually worked there about 10 years ago now. And when I was there, I came upon the first scraps of this story. I started pulling them together over the years. But when I started research for this presentation, I found way more than I had bargained for. So time is a factor, and let's get going. Let us start in 1994. During construction on the parking lot of Dwight D. Eisenhower Elementary School in Sayreville, New Jersey, an unexploded shell was found. It happened again at the same school in 1997 spurring cleanup operations by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which collected and disposed of a combined total of 5,080 pieces of unexploded ordnance. Despite this huge operation, the Corps said at the time that they had probably not found everything. And this was confirmed in 2004 when, while grading for a playground at Samuel Upper Elementary School, yet more ordnance was found. What was going on here? To understand what was happening, we need to look at the geography of the area. New Jersey is between Philadelphia and New York City, basically the place everything has to cross to get to New York City. Middlesex County is in the middle of New Jersey and is made up of 25 municipalities because we have stupid laws, but that's another presentation. The key point is that it's the most New Jersey part of New Jersey. Because of that location uh, in its area, New Jersey has good transportation by land and water, a readily available workforce, both skilled and unskilled. And until the 1950s, New Jersey was relatively sparsely settled and thus had huge tracts of developable land. Middlesex County, as I said, is central to the whole thing. Smack dab in the middle of New Jersey, it's crossed by all sorts of rail corridors and ha importantly has a place on New York Harbor. Uh, and is the mouth of several navigable rivers. Which brings us to Morgan. Morgan, it, you will not find on any map. Uh, it is part of Sayreville, New Jersey, and was one of the original villages that makes up Sayreville, but it was never incorporated. Uh, it has a long history. Privateers operated out of there uh, before and during the revolution, stocking New York Harbor. Uh, but it was always small, so it was largely undeveloped in 1917. Uh, just to show you, Morgan is this part of Sayreville, uh, sort of around the Cheesequake River, which is right here. Uh, this is important because the Cheesequake is navigable up to about, you know, here-ish, um, which means that it never developed into a major waterway because it didn't go very far inland. But if you wanted to build something over here, you'd have port facilities. But let's get back to that later. The munitions industry in the United States started as a cottage industry in the colonial and revolutionary era. DuPont is very important to this story. Uh, DuPont himself was a French exile from the revolution and he found the munitions industry was just a bunch of mom and pop 
operations. He consolidated the industry and made it industrial for the first time, but there was a bit of a natural ceiling on how far he could go because the largest customer in any country to the munitions industry is the military. And the US had a very small army and that army already owned or would come to own several government owned and operated armories around the country that made their own stuff to a large extent. So DuPont set itself up as the main supplier of the army um, and um, also sold to the, the regular customers in the US. Unlike other competitors in this area, DuPont diversified into other kinds of chemical related products. And so they could sort of survive up and downs in the market and vagaries of government contracts. Ultimately, however, DuPont um, was able to use this position to keep other companies from overseas out of the American market, which ran them afoul of antitrust laws. Uh, they were the DuPont we know today is the part of the company that had diversified itself into those other things like paint and fertilizer. The munition side of the business was spun off into a company called Hercules Incorporated by the antitrust uh, rulings. And Hercules was in business until 2008. In 1914, Europe decided to have a war and invite everyone. The US declined at first, but wealthy American industrialists were happy to sell war material to both sides. Uh, though, of course, because of the blockade by the British, we were mostly selling to the Allies. That said, it's important to clarify what we could do at the time. Again, we had a fairly undeveloped arms and munitions industry. Uh, so we had massive natural resource capacity, but we didn't really have any ability to produce finished products. Um, the period between 1914 and 1970, as a result, became this process of ever more frantic ramping up, with 1917 to 1918 being a period of extremely frantic ramping up uh, as we tried to produce for the war. Now, luckily, the Western allies in terms of Britain and France didn't really need American manufacturing. They just needed raw materials. But initially, Russia did need full industrial assistance and American uh, industrialists and from the arms industry and the chemical industries began spooling up to supply the Russians with basically everything. And one notable story is that um, the Winchester company contracted to produce thousands of Mosin Nagant rifles. Another important story to our story is a man named T.A. Gillespie, who was an, a skilled industrial contractor from Pittsburgh. He helped the Canadian Car and Foundry Company set up a shell manufacturing plant in Western Sayreville, New Jersey. Unfortunately, Due to supply chain problems, they could build shells, but they had no fuses. Then when Russia dropped out of the war, which was the main customer for all this stuff, um, the bo bottom fell out of this for a little while. Winchester had only developed, delivered only a few thousand subpar rifles and was left with many thousands on hand in inventory. So if you find a Mosin Nagant in the United States at this point, they're usually Winchesters. Mr. Gillespie ended up selling off his plant to Hercules Incorporated, that spinoff of DuPont. Now, the Black Tom disaster. I do not have time to give this its full due, but very quickly, uh, despite these issues, large quantities of munitions were being shipped to Europe from around the country. Um, previous experience showed transportation companies that they couldn't just put munitions just anywhere, but as they flooded into New York City to get onto ships, they would build up because you don't send things to a waiting ship, you send them to build up beforehand and then start loading them onto the ship. 
So the Pennsylvania and Lehigh Valley Railroad set up, sent all the ammunition trains to Black Tom, which was an island slash rail yard slash pier off the coast of Jersey City. From there, the barges were loaded up with stuff from the trains and then sent out onto the ships. But on this particular evening, the ship was late, so Black Tom was surrounded, was just stuffed to the gills with trains and barges loaded up with explosives and shells. Ultimately, what happened, we now know, is that there was an act of sabotage. A German agent came in and put an incendiary device somewhere, and the whole thing went up. Uh, at the time, though, this was kind of unclear, and how you felt about it uh, said a lot about where you were in terms of the war, because the U.S. was neutral. This was an attack on the United States as a neutral country, but it wasn't clear exactly what had happened. So if you were anti-war, you said it was an accident and the night watchman got drunk. And if you were pro-war, you said that this was a German act of sabotage. Subsequently, we've gotten German government records and we know that it was an act of sabotage, but that was not clear at the time. One thing to just note before we move on is that the explosion was so large that it damaged the arm of the Statue of Liberty, which is why you still can't go up there to this day. Now, as everything was spooling up, um, uh, new facilities were being built all the time. Um, like most facilities in the story, the builders of Kingsland wanted to build it away from population centers. Uh, and in this case, again, the Canadian Car and Foundry Company were building something. They wanted it near to New York Harbor, but not you know, within population centers. So they started filling in the millennia old land, uh, wetland known as the Meadowlands, um, dumping in landfill and pilings. Uh, today, this site is the location of medieval times in Secaucus, New Jersey, if you've ever been there. That used to be this shell loading plant, but now it's not. Possibly due to sabotage, we don't really know in this case, a fire started in a shell repair facility, which is where you scrape explosives out of shells to try and remake them. Luckily, in this case, the fire was slow enough that everyone in that building could get out, and then they informed the plant a phone operator, one Tessie McNamara. As the fire spread to other buildings, they began to explode, shells started going off, and shells started hitting the building that Tessie was in. However, that didn't stop her from doing her duty, which was to call the fire department, call the police, and then call every single building on the campus and make sure that everyone evacuated. As a result of her actions, no one died this time. Um, however, it was kind of a wake-up call to the New Jersey State Legislature, who changed regulations for munitions facilities, calling for more distance between buildings and sturdier, more fireproof-type buildings. All of which is to say that by 1917, the people of Saraville and South Amboy were not unaware of the risks associated with having a giant munitions facility in their town. Sayreville was home to three major munitions plants already, as well as chemical operations, lead manufacturing sites, textile mills, etc. There were an additional two munitions-related operations that I know of in Middlesex County outside of Sayreville, but we'll get back to them. However, much of the focus at this time was on sabotage. By now, the federal government was desperate to ramp up shell production, as the U.S. had fully entered the war and wanted to prove its worth as an ally. And so a scheme was undertaken to build five shell loading plants, four in New Jersey and one in South Carolina. T.A. Gillespie, who had already built one shell loading plant in Sayreville, was brought in for the Sayreville, for the Morgan plant that was envisioned. That said, all the shell loading plants are, were set to follow the same blueprints. These called for a series of single story wood and brick buildings, 25 feet apart, 
in a huge self-contained campus with on-site emergency services and living facilities. To prevent sabotage, the entire thing was surrounded by a seven-foot-tall barbed wire fence and moat. Unlike other factories, the Great Rail Links meant that many workers, mostly women, came to the site from around the state. I wish I had time to go into the workers. It's a really fascinating part of the story. But suffice it to say, I don't have time. Uh, but the pay was spectacular. Most of them were women. Um, and they did experience wage discrimination. But for the time, the pay was still amazing. Now, in room four, uh, building 4-1-1, four they were making amatol. Amatol is a mixture of TNT and ammonium nitrate which is melted together in a giant cauldron. This used to be done over an open flame, but that was found to be a problem. So what they were doing at this point was melting them together in basically what was a huge bain-marie, a steam cauldron, essentially, and then they poured them into the shells. Um, unfortunately, it lit on fire. Um, no one knows exactly what happened because when Amatol lights up, uh, no one gets a chance to tell you what happened afterwards. Um, once that building went up, a train outside, which was stuffed with shells, also went up, and then a second building went up, and then the whole thing just started to cook off. Once the second building exploded, it knocked out the on-site water mains, so now firefighting was useless. Uh, the reaction of most of the workers on site was to start running like crazy. Unfortunately, they then found themselves confronted with the seven-foot-tall barbed wire fence and moat that had been built to prevent sabotage. Uh, obviously, this was a problem, and uh, we don't, the people who survived say basically they don't know how they got out, um, <laughs> which is not great. Um, other reactions were that the proprietor of the old spy inn, which was nearby, figured he was dead anyway, so he kept serving. Um, the Coast Guard station, however, had the best response. Um, they scrambled to assist. Uh, people who were sort of following their, their best training went down to the docks associated with the plant and began pulling barges fully loaded with shells uh, away using tugboats. They pulled them out into the harbor and sank them. Uh, one service member, I don't know if he just had previous experience or whether this was covered in Coast Guard training, he went into the plant and discovered that there were trains still loaded with explosives in this plant with shells raining down. And he got the train operational and pulled out the uh, loaded trains, which undoubtedly saved more lives. 12 Navy crosses ended up being awarded uh, uh, to the Coast Guardsmen. Unfortunately, one thing that is clear from eyewitness testimony is that everyone ran blindly away in all directions. But uh, again, that fence was a problem. This is just a, a look at the scale of the devastation. The thing on the right used to be a train. Ultimately, the whole region was affected. Almost every building in South Amboy was damaged. The hospital was destroyed. Huge portions of Sayreville were destroyed. Obviously, the residents began to just blindly run away, uh, just as the workers in the plant did. And most did not stop running until they dropped from exhaustion. A key part of the evacuation story is that much of the infrastructure shown here in the map did not exist. Um, the people from South Amboy, so the, the plant was down here, the people from South Amboy obviously wanted to go north into Perth Amboy, but these bridges didn't exist. The only thing that existed was one somewhat rickety wooden railroad bridge. 
So these people were running across this bridge. Uh, one survivor describes thinking as he was you know, running across this bridge, one shell hit and this whole thing is gone. But luckily it didn't get hit. Ultimately, we don't know the true scale of the devastation even now. Most of the records and photographs of the factory and its workers were in the factory at the time of the disaster. We know around 6,000 people may have been on site, but many of them were transient workers with their families either far away or on site with them. Um, we can't know how many residents were injured. All we really know is that the event was a huge, massive psychological trauma for the area. And then the war ended nine weeks later, at which point everyone wanted to forget about everything associated with the war. More important, and this is sort of why this is a forgotten incident. Um, but more important for the rest of our story, at this point, the army started heading home, along with all the shells that had been manufactured during the war, uh, and which had been accumulated in France for a 1919 offensive that never came. This left the government with a problem. Obviously, it had to do something with these shells. Uh, arguably, they needed more shells on hand than they'd had in 1917. But where do they store them? Ultimately, what they did was to take the facilities they'd set up during the war for production and distribution and turn them into storage sites. Ultimately, this included the Morgan site as well. After conducting a cleanup of the area, they simply stuck wooden posts back on the ruined brick foundations of the buildings, put on a simple roof, and filled these ad hoc buildings full of returning shells from the war. This state of affairs led to no small amount of accidents, from workers accidentally hitting gun cotton lodged in drain pipes to local scavenging shell casings for the lamps like the one shown, only to discover that the shell was still active. But these were small potatoes compared to Raritan Arsenal and the Nixon Nitration Works. The arsenal itself is in some ways a marvel of engineering and one thrown together in only a few months. Teams of laborers drove pilings into a millennia old swamp and then added landfill. This was used to build a series of train embankments that connected these strange magaz storage magazines. The magazines were built of stone, low to the ground and surrounded by thick earthen berms. Hopefully this would prevent them all going up like a string of firecrackers. Unfortunately, the army did not control the industry that sprang up just outside the gates of the arsenal. Nixon Nitration Works was founded as a shell loading facility during the war, but transitioned to civilian products after. Their main product was cellulose nitrate, an early plastic material originally developed to make billiard balls, but it was found that it had a tendency to explode when jostled too much. However, it was great for making film for the new movie industry. We no longer use it because when you're running film through cameras, you're running it in front of a high heat light source. So that led to problems, but that's a different story. However, this, there wasn't enough business, even with cellulose nitrate production, to fill all the buildings that had been built during the war. And so they rented out some of their buildings to a company called Ammonite. Um, and what Ammonite did was that they purchased shells from the arsenal, opened them up, scraped out the amatol, and turned it back into ammonium nitrate for fertilizer. Swords into plowshares. Except something went wrong. One of the ammonite buildings exploded, which sent the cellulose nitrate in the campus on fire and blew, them, blew the sheets of flaming uh, plastic up into the air. It also cracked open two magazines nearby. After hours of trying to control the fire, the wind suddenly shifted, blowing those flaming sheets of cellulose nitrate towards the cracked open magazines in the Raritan Arsenal. 
Luckily, firefighters, through extraordinary efforts, uh, despite already being exhausted, managed to get the fire under control and the worst case scenario was not realized. After all this, limitations were put in place as to where you could transship explosives in New York Harbor. It was ultimately limited down to uh, the Navy Pier, which is this very, very long, two mile long thing, which is accessible only by a road and a railroad that do not intersect with the rest of the road network and go straight to an army base. The only other place was so-called Powder Pier here in poor South Amboy, uh, but it was limited to 125 pounds. <laughs> uh, nonetheless, um, on this particular day in question in 1950, uh, the National Carloading Corporation discovered that their permit to uh, use the Navy Pier had been denied for whatever reason. Uh, this was unfortunate because there were already thousands and thousands of boxes of, an of anti-tank and anti-personnel mines and thousands of boxes of dynamite on their way to be shipped over to Pakistan and Afghanistan for uh, participation in a war that may or may not have been legal for us to ship to. In any case, they quickly got a waiver from various government officials from South Amboy and brought in extra personnel to hurry up loading of the barges, which would then take these explosives through the port of South Amboy and out to a ship. But of course, they were hurrying and something went wrong. Uh, notably, later on, it was discovered that the mines had the fuses with them in the box, which was not how you were supposed to ship things. Ultimately, the indictment was 2,500 pages long, 18 inches thick, and weighed 30 pounds. So at least someone is finally being held accountable for this stuff. Um, wrapping up now. Uh, again, uh, after all these events, explosives handling in the Port of New York was extremely limited to just the Navy Pier, which is pictured here. Weapons storage, handling, and manufacture is now very limited in New Jersey. That said, the chemical industry boomed until the 1970s, 1980s. Sayreville now contains some truly horrific pollution sites, but it's worth saying it also has some great dive bars, uh, some wonderful people, and one of the largest deposits of fossil-containing amber in the world. South Amboy is a wonderful little city, um, and I would encourage anyone to go check them out if they're in New Jersey. The Morgan disaster site stayed largely vacant until the 1950s, at which point suburban, the suburban housing boom absorbed it all and it was turned into working class, middle class housing. Raritan Township had been slated for a rename at the time of the Nixon disaster, uh, and they were thinking of naming it after Nixon. However, the aftermath of the explosion revealed the entire family to be irresponsible drunks, and so instead they named it Edison, New Jersey. The Raritan Arsenal was gradually abandoned by the army as munition storage moved elsewhere. Uh, after numerous attempts to clean up the spilled munitions and pollution in the swamp, ultimately the northern two-thirds were re redeveloped by the town and county governments as a community college and an industrial park. The southern third was just written off. They used it to bury and destroy munitions, including mustard gas, and it's basically been abandoned to nature. The wetlands are gradually recovering, but I wouldn't advise any human to go there for bird watching. Lessons, explosives are dangerous. Um, follow existing regulations. That's about it. And let me unshare my screen.
Let me figure out how to unshare my screen. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Fantastic, Ben. Thank you so much for that. That was terrifying. Yes. <laughs> like the whole way, I was just thinking, like, imagine being in that situation and going, okay, there's, I have, I might have to run towards the explosions because some idiot has left an even bigger bomb there. And if I don't <laughs> run towards it, it'll blow up. And uh, oh my God, that's, that's absolutely crazy. Um, we've already got a couple of questions. Um, anyone who has them, you can either raise your hand and, and speak if it's easier than typing it out or type it out and put it in the chat or put it in the Q and A and I can read it out. Um, but the first one that came through uh, was from Wesley um, who, <laughs> Unsurprisingly, uh, because this is Wesley Liversay, he's asking about the First World War. Um, given the efforts by the US government around press censorship during the war years, was the 1918 explosion well known outside of the immediate vicinity? That's really interesting. That's a good question. I actually have no idea. Um, what I've basically been told by um, my fantastic sources here, uh, oh, you can't see them anymore. But uh, there's some great sources on this, uh, notably The Explosion at Morgan by Randall Gabrielin. Um, What they mostly talk about is not so much press censorship as just the fact that, you know, just after this happened, the war ended, uh, and then there was the flu pandemic and people coming back. Um, I do imagine that, like, it probably got soft pedaled a little bit by the government, but also when the war ended, press censorship was being lifted. So um, that's a great, great question, though. I, I don't really know the answer. Um, Martin Evans, I know uh, James Bolton first. Uh, were there any accidents like in Halifax involving ships? Now, that's an interesting um, question because I was thinking about the Halifax disaster. Yeah. The closest thing is Black Tom um, in terms of basically in terms of everything now it wasn't actually a ship but it was um it was a dock out in the middle of the water uh all going up at once um and that made everybody think of the halifax at the time um but yeah it, it, no ships really went up in new york harbor luckily as it happens interesting point about black tom due to landfill it is now in the middle of liberty state park you can go there there's a huh. <laughs> i really 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 hope they checked very thoroughly to make sure it was safe um well then then again probably not um roberto asks are there any efforts to find identify and remove any of the leftover stored munitions with the state um again whenever they find one of these things the army corps comes through and does another sweep but you know uh if you, you know, you can ask any of the people who live in France and Germany, uh, there's only so much you can do. Um, yeah. I mean, even, even in, uh, in Britain, like oh, every, yeah. every few weeks, I mean, it's barely even talked about, it's barely even news just, but you speak to a, anyone who's worked on a construction, construction site for a few years and they've all had at least one or two unexploded bombs they found. Um, and I mean, they're generally, apart from the whole possible dying, it's, they're, they're fine with it because, oh, cool. Well, we have to stop work for the day. So this is fine. <laughs> um, so Martin Evans asks, so where did the munitions found in the schoolyards come from? Uh, again, right. Good question. Um, so that area of Sayreville was all developed into suburbs over the old Gillespie Morgan site. So the explosion which just sent shells flying all over the area um that ground zero for that is now a suburban neighborhood 
with schools. Again, fantastic checking by the answers. Oh, Wesley's added another one. Please use this question as an excuse. <laughs> Please use this question as an excuse to tell me more about those women workers at the factory. That's a very good sure. point. Yeah, what they what they were paid a lot of money. Was that for the time? Of, for the time, but was that because of the industry? Was it because of I don't know? Were they a shortage of workers? What what made them uh, get paid so so well? Yeah, it was. Um, let me try and find my slide and see if I have any notes. Um, uh, no, I didn't write down their wages. Uh, that sucks. Um, but, uh, oh, 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 yeah, here we go. Um, so they could get as much as 70, to, uh, workers at the plant could get as much as $70 per week, which was extremely good. Unfortunately, I don't have a conversion as to what that would be like now. Uh, that was about 47.5 cents an hour and women got 37.5 cents an hour. Um, we know that there were African-Americans on site but we, that's all we know. They're mentioned. Um, so many of the plant records were destroyed that we just don't know so many things. That said, um, uh, women working in the munitions industry was a real big thing in World War I. More so in France and England, but America was ramping up to it and it was seen as a patriotic duty. Um, I actually, one of the images I had was one of the war posters encouraging women to take up munitions work. You know, everyone knew it was dangerous, but you know, you know, you're risking it at home on the home front for the men who are risking it on the front line, that kind of thing. Um, as far as why the wages were so high, it was dangerous work. <laughs> and again, yeah, labor shortage, all the men were gone, uh, getting drafted and going over to the war and stuff like that. Um, it was, it was, when you read the reports of the people who were working at Gillespie, uh, going into it, everyone was just like, this is amazing. Cause you, you know, you could be, uh, a non-English speaking immigrant right off the boat and get a really good job. Um, so they were hiring left, right, and center. It was a huge higher up. And like I said, people were coming from all down the Jersey shore on these long commutes to get these wages. So. I just did a quick Google. So, it, and you, it's hard to tell with inflation calculations, that kind of stuff, but according to the first result, $70 in 1918 would be 1,355 today. Per week. Yes. Yeah, so pretty good. To be fair, I might risk uh, getting blown up at work for that kind of money. Um, but again, that's who can say how much, uh, how accurate that even is. Um, Stephen May asks, "How plausible is it to look for old munitions when constructing buildings like schools? Is it a failure of due diligence, or is it just a really hard task?" It's just a really hard task because I mean we've already built infrastructure over it, so it's not like you can just go over with a metal detector and. Mm you know, and even then, like, that's not 100%, right? Uh, and in the 50s, and, you know, the, the 20s, when this was, stuff was happening, metal detectors were even less good than they are now. So the, the fact is that just a lot of the damage has been done back when they couldn't, you know, do, use magnetic imaging or whatever to try and find metal objects underground. They went through and filled the ground with pipes. So now there's all sorts of metal in the ground. So it's really, it's really just uh, luck. Um, again, the, the Army Corps keeps trying. Uh, they found, like I said, they found 5,000 of them the last time they did a sweep, but it is what it is. That is what it is. Um, Roberto asks, what was your drink of choice while researching this very rough topic? 
Um, well, the, again, I, I've been researching this for years, um, and it's just fascinating. Uh, I my first introduction to this whole topic was actually the Nixon, uh, the Nixon's, the Nixon Works explosion because you know I'm sitting there doing maps for my job, and I just see those train tracks. It, like that's a direct pull from Google Maps that image that I used, and it's like, what the heck is that? And my my supervisor comes over and goes, oh, yeah, that was uh, this thing. And they made it like that so they wouldn't just all explode. But I guess they did anyway. <laughs> and, you know, and from there, it's just like, well, I need to research this. Um, and I so I had a, I knew about the Nixon and the Gillespie one going into this uh, and Black Tom. Everyone sort of knows about Black Tom if you've studied the uh, World War One in the United States. Uh, but um, the weird thing is that when I just started Google searching, you know, munitions disasters in the US, I just found, kept finding more and more and more. And there's so many I even left out of this because it was just one or two people. But uh, yeah, it, it was, um, it's a fascinating, interesting topic. Um, but Canadian club. <laughs> I, I was curious, where, how long did the, the, whichever one it was where you showed the crater afterwards, yeah. which is itself terrifying how yeah. and you're talking about that people were being evacuated and they were how long was this thing going on how were there shells raining out the sky for days. half an hour days uh i think I, I said it on the slide it was the fourth through the sixth the sixth is when they got like the fires all out and everything so a, at least a 24-hour period of active shells raining from the sky kind of thing um yeah terrifying yeah. <laughs> you know people yeah. ran i i uh uh, I forgot to say, um, people ran as far as Keyport, which let me just pop my screen back on. Um, right, so South Amboy, Morgan, Keyport. Mm. Um, uh, sorry, Morgan's down, down here. This is like, people just ran that in a night out of sheer terror. Uh, I can't, um, that's miles and miles and miles. Uh, I can't even begin to imagine you know what kind of, what was behind them that made them do that you know and what time it, it started during the day uh yeah that's a good question um because that oh, be somehow even scary like it was the sun had already set yeah I, I and all of a sudden you just see a big fire in the distance and then explosions <laughs> randomly I, around i believe it was dark i could be oh, wrong about God. that um, I, I believe it was a night shift, but I don't know that for sure. Um, yeah, <laughs> wow. or it was it was towards dusk, something like that. Well, uh, final question: Diogenes the Cynic says asks, "Is the Devil Tree the result of these deaths? <laughs> Hauntings of those that lost? Isn't the Devil Tree in Warren?" Um, I, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I'm not expecting. I hoped that, that you knew Bridgewater. Bridgewater, yes, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know how they would get to Bridgewater from from Sayreville, <laughs> but you know, New Jersey certainly is known has some haunt. Actually, the Spy Inn is a much more locally famous haunted place. Unfortunately, it burned down. Um, oh, but really? A, a yeah. A, it survived the massive explosion, but then well, someone dropped a cigarette. It, you know, it it got uh, it ran on hard times i guess in the in the 80s and the it was ridiculous i mean so I, I should finish my first thought 
a spy was hung there in the revolution. That's why it's got that name. Um, and so there's all sorts of stories of people who say they saw, you know, saw a hanging body in a tree near there or whatever. Um, but so ridiculously old building. Uh, and in the eighties, when we weren't quite so good with historic preservation, um, it had uh, the business, it, it had gone out of business. There was no money to keep it up properly. And, you know, it burned down, which is very unfortunate. Um, the, that whole part of Morgan has just lost its history. Uh, the, the only reason you know that you're in like a historically significant area is that suddenly the road is paved with bricks. Uh, but it's like, it's not a main street. It's just houses. Um, it's very strange. Um, but uh, there's still, the, the locals keep it up. There's some great websites and web resources about the history of the place. So a lot of stuff online to check out. Cool. Well, before we finish up, because we're cu cutting it close and uh, I know that the the man in charge of this uh, has a very strict opinion on all this kind of stuff. Uh, Roberta says, we love you, Ben. Completely agree with that. Um, where can people find your podcast if they want to listen more? Not okay. obviously, obviously, Wittenberg's Westphalia is not going to be talking about munitions explosions, but no, sadly. if they're interested in hearing more from you, where can they find you? Uh, yeah, so Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation is my main podcast. Um, uh, Wittenberg to Westphalia at Weebly.com is the website, and you can find all the social media stuff from there. I should also say I have a second podcast called Why Though? A Personal Journey Through My Record Collection, which is a lot of fun. Uh, and I believe that one's Why Though? A Podcast at Weebly.com uh, or .weebly.com. So uh, yeah, lots of uh, other opportunities to see me talk about stuff. Well, fantastic. We'll leave it there. Uh, thank you, everyone, for watching. Thank you, Ben, for presenting. And uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of your day. I am made of with camel Sherman PT-17 16 cloudy I go slow Compared to modernity I'm a humming bee Sweater weather and Hugs and drugs and Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. In store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail 23. Shopify.com slash retail 23.